Hello and welcome to Legal Frontiers, the new podcast from the School of Transnational Law of Peking University uh, in Shenzhen. A podcast that will be examining the intersections between law and the transnational challenges uh, that we face. My name is Stephen Minas and I'm joined today by my colleague uh, Susan Finder. Susan is a distinguished scholar in residence at SDL and is the author of the Supreme People's Court Monitor blog. Susan, welcome. Yeah, thank you very much for the invitation. Well, it's, it's great that you're uh, with us. Um, as I said, you have been monitoring the Supreme People's Court, the, the SPC, for, for a number of years. And I wanted to just start off by asking you, how did you become interested in the Supreme People's Court? Uh, it's, it's a, it was a serendipitous event. Uh, I was a student at Peking University in, you know, in Beijing in the 80s, and I rode around on a bicycle, and, and one of the places I visited was the Supreme People's, the People's Court Press, uh, you know, shop, the of the so I bought a number of these judicial handbooks uh, when I was there. there. This was in the days before computer databases. And a number of years later, I started flipping through these handbooks and was totally mystified. So... That, no, that was the original source of my curiosity about the Supreme People's Court. So a, a, a chance uh, encounter with a, a press uh, store in, in Beijing, and then yeah, that's many, right. many years later you returned uh, to the topic. Uh, and of course, yeah. one of the things I'd like to ask you is, is how the uh, Supreme People's Court has changed in all those years, but perhaps we can come to that uh, at the end. Uh, now, now, many listeners... Uh, who are not specialists in Chinese legal procedure uh, may be wondering to themselves, what is the Supreme People's Court? Is it just like any other Supreme Court in another country or does it have particular characteristics? Yeah, well, the Supreme People's Court has, its, has many special characteristics. Um, hearing, so it's much larger than other Supreme Courts around the world. It has, Somewhere around 365, anyway, somewhere between 300 and 400 judges, um, so many more than other courts. Uh, the, its functions are different. So hearing cases is only part of what they do. Yeah, I mean... Yeah, I can follow up with any other points. Well, certainly, I mean, in addition to hearing cases, uh, what are the other important roles of the SPC? Okay, so one uh, extremely important function of the Supreme People's Court is to issue what are called uh, judicial interpretations. Um, they're somewhat controversial in China. But there are some academics who say, oh, they're... Supreme People's Court is exercising legislative 
authority. I mean, I, I disagree with this theory, but um, these play an important function in filling in the huge gaps in Chinese legislation. Because uh, I guess as, as I explained to students, the NPC, the National People's Congress, it meets once a year, and then the Standing Committee meets every other month for a short time. So you're in a situation where legislation gets issued slowly, and then it tends to big statements of principles. On the other hand, you have 28 million cases last year, or two years ago, in the Chinese courts. And people bring cases whether or not there is detailed legislation. So the judges in the lower courts need more detailed rules when they try to figure out what the legislation means. And that's what these judicial interpretations are doing. Yeah, yes, so, so there's an involved process to draft these. Yes, and it, it's very interesting comparing that to many other countries uh, where you have a, a full-time legislature a much smaller superior court, uh, and of course, uh, the absence of 28 million cases. Um, now, another distinguishing feature of the SPC, of course, is its uh, relationship with the, uh, the governing party of the country, the Communist Party. Uh, and this is, this is very much uh, something of interest for those outside uh, China. So how would you characterize that relationship? Okay, so there's... The Supreme People's Court has always been under party leadership. Uh, in the Xi Jinping era, that has changed. Um, and a year ago, um, the policy was announced to be that this, the courts and other political legal organs, so this the Procuratorate, Public Security, etc., there are all under the absolute leadership of the Communist Party. So the Zhe Lingdao. So it's a change in party leadership, in um, party policy towards what its role in society is. Yeah, I was gonna say, on, on the other hand, it doesn't mean that there's more party involvement in specific cases. Sure. So the party's involvement in the Supreme People's Court is mostly felt at the systemic level. Is that your understanding? Um, I think it's more complicated than that. Um, okay, so the, the party will issue... Oh, yeah, for example, the, I wrote about the fourth plenum uh, recently, and a document that the Supreme People's Court issued to implement the Fourth Plenum decision um, in the modernization of the courts. So it's systemic, and it will affect very, you know a broad range of aspects of how the the courts operate. This this is a very recent document, isn't it? Um, from from early April, I believe. And yeah, it, that's right. Yeah. It, it's quite a it's quite a comprehensive 
a statement of, of both uh, principles and, and particular areas of work. I, I wonder if you could elaborate on the importance of this document within the system and, and what it is uh, portending for the Supreme People's Court. Yeah, so it's a framework document for its modernization or uh, changes going forward for the next few years, you know, so accompanying the, the fourth plenum decision and how it's implemented in the Supreme People's Court. So it's across a whole big range of issues. And so it highlights, you know, sp specific matters of interest. You know, I mean, one thing is um, I, I, IP law, um, continuing uh, reforms in the area of criminal justice, yeah, implementation of socialist core values, uh, greater use of, uh, what do they call it, uh, diversified dispute resolution. Yeah, so it's, it's across a whole range of, of issues. Um, but but this, this concept of new era governance is, is a very significant buzzword within that overall framework, isn't it? And that's also something which is being taken forth in the court system. Yeah, that's correct. Yeah. But the courts need, to, I mean, a lot of that is involves practical issues since there are the 28 million cases. Yeah. So technology, for example, is included in this document as something uh, that the work needs to, that the court needs to progress work on. Yeah. That's, yeah, that's right. And, uh, and also various elements of uh, judicial reform and, and as you say, um, broader diversified dispute resolution. Um, so, so that is, that is the macro perspective of the court, the, the overall uh, reform program for the current period. I also wanted to ask you about a, a couple of specific matters, uh, which, which are, which are uh, timely. Uh, the court, like, like I suppose every institution on earth currently is, is grappling with the pandemic and the uh, coronavirus uh, tragedy. And, and the court has issued a couple of um, documents specific to the response to the coronavirus. I wonder if you could tell us a bit about that. Okay, yeah, it has. Um, so when it issued, I believe it was in February, so related to kind of criminal justice matters. Um, because, you know, law and order or social stability and this kind of thing. That, so that's a particular area of concern when there are over a billion, you know, the population is so large. So in February, the Supreme People's Court and several other institutions issued a document on relating to criminal justice matters uh, related to the uh, coronavirus. So not making new law, but saying, uh, watch out for this, it, you know, and, you know, certain offenses should be punished more severely or we should issue um, model cases to, so that lower court judges will understand what will, you know, the correct way to decide these cases. 
And, and this is an important function of the court, isn't it? That these opinions, as you say, are not making new law, but they're providing guidance for the lower courts in, in how they implement their work. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's, just, it's another of the special characteristics of the Supreme People's Court is issuing policy documents because part of the role of the Supreme People's Court is to is to um, provide judicial services and guarantees um, to the party in the country as things go forward. So this is really, it's part of the, its greater function. Now, I wanted to turn to the role of the court in some of China's international engagement. And there are a couple of areas where the court has become newly prominent. Uh, first of all, with the establishment within the court of the, uh, the China International Commercial Court, uh, and also in terms of its role in the broader uh, Belt and Road Initiative framework. Uh, so the, the commercial court, first of all, perhaps you could tell us a bit about how this court has been established and how it relates to the broader framework of the Supreme People's Court. Okay, so the uh, China International Commercial Court, the CICC, yeah, so there was a party decision that must have been maybe January of 2018, I think. Yeah, so it was anyway, the, the establishment was approved at a very high level. Um, but I believe work, work must have been going on before that, considering uh, what to do, how to position it, um, because it, it needed to fit within the restrictions of current Chinese law. Yes, and it was established as uh, a unit within the Supreme People's Court, wasn't it? Yeah, yeah, but it's not, uh, it's different from the new um, IP court. So I, the, the IP court, the Supreme People's Court, you know, intellectual property court, that's full time. And so it has a, a separate set of judges working there. Um, for the CICC, the judges do it on top of their other responsibilities. So yeah, the, so, so yeah, if you look, so if you look at, at the website, you'll see that, you know, judge so-and-so is at the Sixth Circuit, plus he's a CICC judge. And, and what, what do you believe is the intention behind the CICC? Why, why was it decided, in your view, to establish such an organization and to establish it in that way within the Supreme People's Court? I imagine the thinking was that they could see that other countries were establishing, you know, there's, there's a trend of international commercial courts being established around the world. And with the Belt and Road Initiative, they felt that China should have its international commercial court as well. And it needed to be at the level of the Supreme People's Court. And the fact that it is at the level of the Supreme People's Court, um, I suppose, gives its judgments 
a certain uh, cachet, if, if not precedent uh, effect. I think you've spoken of soft precedents. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Yeah, that's, yeah, that's, yeah, actually, I've, I've written about that. Uh, yes, so there have been, so far, all the cases have been heard in five judge panels, so which means the cases are quite significant. So the decisions are meant to, yeah, they're meant as soft precedents. It's not a hard precedent system, but there's significant, you know, so lower court judges will say, oh, this is, again, it's a gap, a gap filling exercise, you know, additional to judicial interpretations. Yes, and you've also written, I believe, that the CICC has had more academic articles written about it than there have been CICC judgments so far. So I think, yes. This is still a relatively new phenomenon, is it not? Yeah, that's right. It takes a while before people... There's always a, a timeline but between contract drafting, you know, putting your dispute... Putting a court or arbitration institution into your uh, dispute resolution clause and there being cases. So I believe the cases that are in their pipeline are ones that were already in the court system. That's right. It, it has this interesting jurisdiction that the, um, on the one hand, one can contractually provide for certain uh, matters to, to be governed by the CICC, but on the other hand, uh, the, the Supreme People's Court more broadly can refer cases uh, to the CICC. Yeah, I think lower courts can do that as well. And lower courts. Yeah, 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 because a, a set of rulings last year concerning um, an arbitration clause, and I believe those were referred from, originally from the Shenzhen Intermediate Court, yeah, maybe through Guangdong, but... Sure. So it, it will be interesting to see the extent to which international uh, transactions elect or not uh, to have the jurisdiction of the CICC. And, and that um, engages the broader question of the Belt and Road Initiative and all of the commercial transactions which are under that. Uh, and, and this has also been an area of recent work of the Supreme People's Court. Um, you have written about the court's second opinion on the Belt and Road Initiative uh, released uh, at the end of last year. Oh, so you're asking about the, um, Belt, the new Belt and Road opinion. Uh, yeah, it's also an aspect of the Supreme People's Court serving party in the government because so it's in a, a number of uh, different ways updating their Belt and Road opinion from 2015 for the in the new era and post the second Belt and Road um, conference of last year. Yes. So yeah, and then updates it in a number of ways. Okay, so there's the political part relates to post 19th Party Plenum, excuse me, 
19th Party Congress and post fourth plenum um, policy with new buzzwords like improving the business environment. Um, yeah, creating an international law-based and convenient business environment with stability, fairness, transparency, and predictability. So that, that you, you see in uh, the decisions related to the CICC as well. Like new policy and contract uh, interpretation, uh, extending the influence of Chinese law abroad, that is something mentioned in the it, it mentions uh, the Chinese courts having a role in assisting foreign courts and arbitration institutions to correctly decide, correct, excuse me, <clears throat> correctly understand and apply Chinese law. Um, yeah, so there's some provisions related to the CICC. Just on that, on um, the influence of Chinese law abroad, it, it also calls for the publishing of, um, of typical cases in multiple languages. So it seems to um, be making quite an effort to, in a sense, bring Chinese law to the, the jurisdictions, uh, presumably where Chinese commerce is present. Um, is this, I, I suppose this is um, part of the practicality of, of the Belt and Road, uh, but also uh, part of this ongoing question about whose law will govern transactions, which, which is an important one uh, when we start to look at a number of years of the Belt and Road and presumably disputes uh, starting to occur on the ground. Yeah, but I think they're, they're somewhat related but really different because the second, the second matter you mentioned, the choice of law, um, that's an issue between the parties um, and and may also have to do with whatever, what local law is, you know, so it, it could be for a construction contract in Pakistan that, Pakistan, you know, that local law must govern. Yeah, so I, it, it, it all depends, you know, I think that, that's much more complicated. And in fact, the same opinion um, at, at Article 13 directs courts to apply local law, uh, sorry, foreign law, if, if the choice of foreign law upholds contractual validity. So that's, that's an interesting uh, prompt that is being given here to, to Chinese courts uh, about the applicability of, of foreign law. Yeah, yeah, because what has often happened in the past is a, a Chinese court will say, oh, we can't, we can't determine what the foreign law is. Let's apply Chinese law. Um, yeah, we, I, in, a, in a way you can understand it because the court just wants to close the case and move on to the next case. Um, and, you know, it avoid problems in having to figure, determine what Pakistan law is on a particular issue, right, for example. Yes, yes, and that, that, that as, as I suppose the impetus behind this is that often the foreign law will in fact be contractually applicable to the matter and, and presumably Chinese rules of private international law will direct uh, the court to sometimes apply foreign law. So that's as you say, there's an interesting practical challenge for the courts, but there's also the legal uh, requirements sometimes to apply. Uh, yeah. 
Now, now you mentioned that the, the opinion also uh, relates to international commercial courts more generally. Uh, yes, that's right. Yeah, it mentions uh, that the SBC should work with other international commercial courts to establish exchanges and cooperation. It mentions training judges. So China's uh, cooperates with other international commercial courts under the standing international uh, form of commercial courts. So unclear whether the cooperation is meant to be under the international forum or, or, or elsewhere. That's unclear. And in terms of uh, Chinese cooperation with, with other um, courts trying international matters, um, there's also been a, a growing role for the National Judicial College in, in providing training, as they're not, um, for foreign judges in respect of Belt and Road countries. Oh, yeah, that's right. Yeah, I haven't had a chance to really write in, in, in many, at any length about Belgian Road training. But yeah, I, I think it's, yeah, it's, it's quite interesting. Um, in the, yeah, in the last few years, the, Nas the National Judicial College, the NJC has been training um, judges from Belt and Road countries and sometimes legal officials on ch Chinese legal matters. So, Susan. Yeah. So, yeah, so I'm, I'm not, yeah, I mean, I've, I haven't seen a detailed curriculum to know exactly what they're being taught. I mean, it could be some things are more general, let's say about use of technology or use of mediation, you know, so commonalities across jurisdictions or trying to familiarize judges and other ju jurisdictions with basic concepts in Chinese law. I'm, uh, yeah. Yeah. But at the same time, the National Judicial College also cooperates with um, other jurisdictions, you know, so, so uh, they work with the, uh, like the German judicial, I forget, German judicial college. So every year there are German judges who come in and, and do training. So having, having discussed some of the current developments of the Supreme People's Court, I wanted to ask you finally uh, how you would reflect on this institution and its changes over the decades. Um, obviously, uh, since, since the years where you first encountered the Supreme People's Court um, and its, its, uh, its documents, uh, not only the court, but the entire Chinese system has, has changed in, in quite dramatic ways, uh, particularly in an economic sense. How has the court developed in that time? Yeah, well, it's, yeah, it's, it's a really good question. I mean, it, the change to the SPC is related to its economic developments, also to uh, the education of, of the, you know, the big growth in Chinese legal professionals. So when I was first writing about the Supreme People's Court, so 
in the early 90s, there were still people at the Supreme People's Court who, like, without a legal background. Uh, now, I, I would guess every, certainly everybody has a legal education. Most have at least a master's, quite a few PhDs. It's a much more professional body of judges. Um, the work is, I mean, the many, there are more international issues than, you know, 30 years ago. Yeah, so that has to do with China's economic changes. Many, many more cases at the Supreme People's Court, you know, mostly civil and commercial cases. Also, yeah, yeah, I was, yeah, and then in the meantime, the Supreme People's Court has taken back the death penalty review authorities. You know, so that happened in 2007. So, because when I first wrote about, about the Supreme People's Court, provincial high courts had that authority. Yeah, so that, I mean, that's, that's a very important piece in the, that's also an, a, a piece in the Supreme People's Court implementing its authority in the criminal justice area, you know, so controlling, you know, China has the death penalty. So if it's at the Supreme People's Court level, then it's all in one place, you know, that authority is exercised in one place. Yes, that was certainly a very significant uh, reform that I was also interested in and, and wrote about at the time. Uh, a final question, Susan. Um, just if you could tell us a little bit about your, your work at the School of Transnational Law, perhaps a bit about your teaching and, and what you're currently working on, of course, virtually these days, but... Uh, yeah. Uh, yeah, so I've been teaching at, SP, at STL since 2015. So I first started teaching this Judicial Reform and Comparative Perspective uh, course. And about the last two years, you know, I've been doing more teaching in the area of legal writing. Um, increasingly discovering that there are similarities and differences between Chinese and English academic legal writing. So helping students, you know, kind of you know, recognize the differences and be able to write well in English. Yeah, and I think it also enables them to see Chinese legal issues from another perspective. Yeah, yeah, no, so it's, it's a lot of fun. Yeah, because so I often need to push them and say, oh, you need to explain the, the greater social or business environment. You know, the, of course, our, our students, they're sitting, they're sitting, they're in China, they're, these days, they're at home. So sometimes it's a bit hard for them to realize the specific topic they're talking about, you know, a foreign reader wouldn't be familiar with them. But it's, 
I really enjoy I really enjoy our students. Yeah, I mean, I think it's a you know, it's a great privilege to be able to teach at STL. Well, on that note, uh, Susan Finder, thank you very much. You're welcome. Thank you. And thank you very much for listening. Until next time, stay safe.